uh, we are in a series called Easter Places, and so we're thinking about the Easter story, uh, shockingly, around the places of Easter. And so two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Kip took us to the temple and the triumphal entry, and so we actually kind of uh, celebrated, in a sense, Palm Sunday that day. Last week, uh, Pastor Bruce took us to the upper room and crossed into Gethsemane. This morning, we are going to make our way from Gethsemane to the tomb. And we're going to move through uh, some of it a little bit quickly. So you can turn your Bible to Matthew 26, but we're not going to be reading a whole lot of this. Instead, we've been doing kind of a travel log. Now, I never saw the travel logs because I'm so very young. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I have seen a lot of slideshows. Um, and so uh, we're going to move through Matthew 26. 27 and into um, right up to 28 um, together in a kind of a slide so slide show fashion. So we start in Gethsemane and there is a place that Jesus cried out to the Father if there's any way that we can dodge this, if there's any other way to address what I'm about ready to address, take that from me and the Father says, no. And Jesus says, essentially wins the victory here. He says, uh, not my will, but yours be done. Immediately after that is concluding, Judas shows up with the soldiers to arrest him. Judas kisses him. Jesus calls him friend. His disciples flee. Um, Jesus had predicted this because the last prediction he gave was in 26, verse 31. Jesus had told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And of course, they all argued that they weren't going to fall away. Uh, but at the arrest, Jesus says to, the, to his captors, you're looking for me, not them, let them go. And it finishes with, they all fled. They deserted him and fled. Jesus is taken before Caiaphas, the high priest, verse 57. And they had assembled um, an illegal trial. And they're looking, verse 59, for any evidence to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. They had many false witnesses, but they couldn't get their stories together. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Verse 62, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not gonna answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing before you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is Jesus looking through his current trials, looking at the joy that lay before him, the final uh, return in glory. The high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? In other words, we, 
We don't, need, we don't need the law. We don't need to follow protocol. What do you think? And they said he's worthy of death. I want you to note something that Caiaphas tore his clothes. That was a sign of extreme grief. That's a sign of despair. It's what you do when the enemy is at your doorstep and it looks like you're going to fall to captivity or, or a horrific thing has already happened and so you would have let your hair be unkempt, you would have fasted, you would have torn your robes, you would have put ashes on yourself and it would have been a display of we're done for. There's no hope. Leviticus, which you read a few months ago, maybe a month ago, um, 21.10, we're not going to turn there, but 21.10 says that the high priest is not to tear his robe. In fact, Exodus 39.23 gives us the, uh, the sewing, I don't, I don't know what it's called, I, I did not study my sewing terminology. The sewing recipe is what I was going to say, but <laughs> I'm betting that's wrong. Emline can correct me afterwards. What? The pattern. Okay. I don't. Like I said, I'm no sewing pro. <laughs> Exodus 39:23 gives the instructions for how to make the collar of the garment of the priest so that, and it explicitly says, so that it will not tear. Now, the Old Testament doesn't exactly explain why, but we actually get a little taste of it back in Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu are struck dead by God for offering unholy fire. And Moses and Aaron are wanting to mourn, and he says, no, you don't get to grieve this. Not publicly, anyway. And he specifies that they don't get to let their hair be unkempt or tear their robes. Tearing a robe says that God seems to be out of control, that the situation is in chaos, that we are in despair, and the high priest should never be in despair. The high priest knows who Yahweh is and what he is capable of and what his promises are. So, while the text does not say it directly, I think we're going to see that here we see Caiaphas give up his priesthood. Because in Leviticus 10, when Yahweh told Moses, you are not to tear your robe, and if you do, I will kill you. Just because God doesn't kill a person when they've done something wrong doesn't mean that he's okay with it. If that were the case, we would, you know, if, if that was the only way he could display his true feelings, we would not be here. Uh, there would have been no ark. He would have just been like, and we're done. All right? So, so I think here at this point, um, Caiaphas gives up his priesthood and suddenly... Israel is without a high priest. Next slide is Peter's failure. Three times the girl says, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And three times he says, I don't know. And the final one he takes oaths and he uses profanity in addition to it. Like swearing by Yahweh most high, I don't know the man. Peter's failure followed by Judas's failure. Judas who believed there could be no forgiveness. 
Judas who was wrong. Judas who could have been saved had he repented. Instead, he took matters into his own hands. Jesus is brought before Pilate. Pilate knows that he's innocent. Pilate says, would you like Jesus released or a known terrorist? And they say, we will take the terrorist. And so the innocent is handed over for the guilty. By the way, if you haven't noticed in our Bible reading, God does the same thing over and over and over again. The innocent being handed over for the guilty is remarkably good news for you and I. You and me, because I know my wife's listening. Jesus is taken before the soldiers, and the soldiers mock the real king. They put a crown of thorns on his head. We're told those thorns are four to six inches long. They make it a crown. They put it on his head, and then they beat him with staffs about the head. He's beaten mercilessly. They bow down to him. They beat his back. They tear it open so that it would have been like nothing left. They put a robe on him long enough that the blood starts to congeal, gets into it. They bow. They mock. They blindfold him. They say, who hit you? And then they tear the robe off. He's hung on a cross. On either side of him are criminals who deserved the cross. Um, We know from another gospel that one of them eventually repents, but Matthew just tells us that they too mock the king. Here's Jesus, the son of God, who has lived a blameless life on my behalf, on your behalf, hanging on the cross with two people who deserve it, they're mocking him, and he extends grace and love and ultimately prays even for those who are murdering him. And then he dies. Um, Turn there with me. Verse 40, uh, chapter 27, verse 46. We've just had the three hours of darkness and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Eloi is my God, Elihu is Elijah. They don't sound alike. Why did they think he was calling for Elijah? One, messianic fervor would have brought to mind Elijah. But two, he has been beaten mercilessly. He didn't call out in a clear, strong voice. His head has been beaten, his back has been beaten, his neck, his throat, he is a bloody mess, about ready to die. 
He didn't speak clearly. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with the wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. So there is some sympathizer there. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple that divides the holy from the most holy tears. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember the high priest grabs his collar, which is specially designed to not tear, and tears it from top to bottom. Now the veil is tearing from top to bottom. The veil, which was six inches thick or more. This is not a flimsy thing. It was also specially designed to not fail. It split. The earth shook and the rocks split. It's the same uh, Greek word. The veil splits and then the rocks split. Everything's breaking. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The resurrection power, the sacrificial power, the redeeming work that Jesus was doing on the cross was so overwhelming, so strong. It's like some splashed out and where it landed, life erupted. Uh, Scripture doesn't tell us anything more than this. This mind-boggling event of a woman who had lost her husband, he shows up. It reminds me of Jesus in the garden when the soldiers come to arrest him in John, and they say, uh, he says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus, and he says, I am. He pronounces the name of Yahweh, and they fall down. It's like just power radiates. Sometimes Jesus can't control it, it seems like. When the centurion who was with, who was with him who were, and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now we have John Wayne at the bottom of the cross who sees what's happening and says, surely he was the son of God. That's, that's my best John Wayne, sorry. I should have watched it. That's not what it actually says. Do you see what it says? It says that the centurion and those who were with him, when they saw that and everything else, in other words, after, they got to see the people who showed up out of the graves. Because it just, it just described it all, and then it says, and all of that. So this is days later. The centurion, I don't know what he's thinking at that moment. It was probably pretty scary when the lights went out for three hours, and then suddenly there's an earthquake. That would have tipped you off. But then imagine uh, three days later, you're walking around Jerusalem and you find out that dead people are back. Then the centurion says, oh no. Oh no, what have I, you know, what have I done? I can't help but think we're gonna see that centurion in heaven. <laughs> like like that he figured it out, I don't know. I hope, I hope he did. 
And then they take him down from the cross. And there at the foot of the cross are the women who have been caring for him during his ministry. One disciple, John, his mother. His mother who had pondered all these things in her heart, who had been told that a sword was gonna pierce her heart, has now just watched her son be executed. They take him down and they place him in a new linen and put him into the tomb. And to add insult to injury, they add a Roman guard. That is despair. The most wrong event in human history. That's dark. If you want to know what darkness is, this is darkness. Usually that's where we we land it on this day or on Thursday night if you do a Monday, Thursday or Good Friday service. Um, It's usually where we land it, right? But we're talking about Easter places. And I think that if we're going to talk about the cross, we have to talk about its corollary place. And we have to ask the question, what was really happening at the cross? Because we have just seen it from the underside Tom Julian used to talk about the underside of the church. Uh, Theologians talk about the underside of God's plan. So we've seen it from the bottom. We've seen it from the human side. But what was really happening? Turn with me in your Bibles because I want you to be able to know exactly where it is so you find it later. Hebrews 9. If you're using a device, that's okay, I'm not gonna judge you, but there is a pew Bible right in front of you where you can physically turn to it and see it or, or pause the video if you're watching online and go grab your Bible so that you can find this again because there's something remarkable that is happening that I think we, I, I don't know how we miss it, but we, we miss it frequently. Hebrews 9 verse 11. I'm gonna read a couple sections of verses here in nine. <laughs> 9 verse 11, when Christ came as a high priest of good things that are already here. Oh, high priest. Israel had lost their high priest, but I have fantastic news. They gained a new one. They gained a much better one who is everlasting. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. What? What is this magic? temple. This is a temple that is in heaven, and we learn throughout scripture that the earthly tabernacle and temple were patterned after this. There is is currently a real temple in heaven. And while Jesus is on the cross, or or perhaps after, I don't, don't ask me the mechanics, I don't know, We're just gonna read Hebrews and it will tell you, but that's where he went. That's where he uh, actually offered the sacrifice that truly mattered. 
not part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he, most, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is a mediator of a new covenant. Uh, let's skip down to verse 19. Because we read this recently, just a couple months ago. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the blood, or sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. They use blood to clean things. Now, what do we do when we see blood? Ah! Clean it up, spray special stuff on it. Blood cleansed things. Blood cleans things. That's what Jesus' blood did. It dealt with sin. Verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. In other words, if we're going to have a copy, if we're going to have a child's version, which is what the tabernacle and the temple were, those things had to be purified with sacrifices that the animals, but the heavenly things themselves, if we're going to take care of the heavenly temple, that has to be with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. What a pathetic high priest who has to bring someone else's blood Jesus brought his own. What kind of priest is that? There's never been one like that. There couldn't have been. Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That is what was happening at the cross. Jesus looked defeated here, but really, it just provided the mechanism or the means for him to, to march into the heavenly temple with his own blood and say, I'm taking care of it. The sacrifice you've been waiting on since creation, here it is. That's what was happening at the cross. At the darkest time in all of human history, God was working in the light on the other side. By the way, let me put on the uh, man, am I behind or what? Pro. By the way, this is what God does. Easter is not unique in this way. 
This is just what God does. Do you remember, not long ago, we read the story of Balaam. His donkey is hilarious, but we're not talking about that right now. Remember, he is called by a, by a foreign uh, king to come curse the Israelites. And so he takes him up to a really high place, and he's going to curse him. Who's down in the valley? The Israelites. Do they deserve cursing? All God's people said, yes. Yes, they did. Because they were rebelling against Yahweh as he was rescuing them. And they were saying, we don't have the right water, we don't have enough food, and we're tired of manna. And we hate Moses. And God kept taking care of them and taking care of them, and they kept rebelling and rejecting him and sinning and murmuring. They deserved to be judged. It would have made perfect sense for God to say, yes, I will take Balaam up to the mountain and I will have him curse the Israelites. But God made him bless them. The Israelites had no idea that up on the mountain was their enemy blessing them. Satan had no idea that he was going to elevate Christ on a cross and rescue the world. If the powers of darkness would have understood, Peter said, they would not have crucified Jesus. This is what God does. Remember Esther? We'll read it at some point. All of Israel, all of the Jews are going to be exterminated. The date had been set. It looked dark. Esther cried out to God, and in the midst of it all, when it looked like Mordecai was going to be executed, suddenly God says, hey, king, I'd like you to wake up. I would now like you to read some recent history. If you wake up in the middle of the night, so what the Bible says, read some history. There was God working in the darkness. It looked hopeless. This is what God does. So how do we live in the darkness? Well, let me ask you, what should the disciples have done? Darkest time in human history, what should the disciples have done? If you don't know, look at the top of your bulletin. What's it say? I can't hear anyone, you're all so quiet. Wait by the grave. This part of the congregation knows how to read. Thank you. I don't know about the rest of you. What had Jesus told them? He told them many times, I am going to die. I'm going to be handed over. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. What should they have done? If they didn't know what else to do, they should have just gone to the grave and waited. Because he was going to do it. Do we trust Jesus or not? So they should have waited by the grave. He said, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. All right, fine. If you don't want to wait by the grave, go to Galilee. Do what he's told you. Okay, maybe that's not super helpful for today. That's, maybe that's not very detailed. It is super helpful. Uh, a little more detail. Remember the cross. If you're in darkness, and I've been in darkness... You have been, I know many of your stories. If you haven't been, you will be. 
I'm not saying that to be macabre. It's just the way it is. You're going to be in darkness. And at that time, remember the cross. Remember the fact that in the darkness, God is working on the light. The trite scripture, for we know that God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord. That does not mean everything's going to work out nice to our satisfaction in an American movie ending. But it means that my likeness to Christ is going to be pursued uh, relentlessly regardless of the circumstances. And that's the fantastic news, that I, that I am confident that at the end of it all, I will be like Christ, because I'll see him as he is. So remember the cross. It looked terrible, and it was terrible. I'm not saying that the terrible things that happen in our lives aren't real, or that we shouldn't feel sad over those things. Of course we should. But we need to remember the truth. Despair was dealt a death blow at the cross. Do you remember our series on the habits? I do. When it is dark, remember I said that, why do we practice habits? Why do we have habits? Why do we do practice? We do practice because game day is coming, right? We do practice because we are in a war and there are days in which the battle gets very hot. And if we have practiced well, we are ready for battle. Days and times and months and years of darkness in our lives are game day. Those are the days when we need to be able to run in on autopilot because we've been, doing the, we've been practicing all the habits of abiding and drawing close to Jesus, of knowing the truth, of beholding it around us, of, of meditating on and memorizing scripture, of singing and making music in our hearts and, and encouraging one another together with practicing thanksgiving. Do you remember that we're supposed to be thankful? That we don't just bring our cares to, to Christ and set them on him, but we bring them with thanksgiving. Not thankful for the evil, but thankful in the midst of the evil. And then to commit ourselves to prayer. Hebrews also says that we have a high priest who has entered the most holy place, and because of that, we can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in time of need. That's remarkable. When we say, dear Father, we are transported to the throne of grace, and we can find help in time of need. He has dealt with our most despairing problem, our sin, and he will help us move through the darkness.